Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store and type in Jazz Session and it'll pop right up. You can subscribe and get it free delivered right into iTunes each week. Or you can go right to the website, thejazzsession.com, and listen to all of the archives for free anytime you want. I do want to make uh, one note. Thejazzsession.com is becoming a little more bloggy. Uh, It used to be almost exclusively episodes of the show and then links to my articles uh, on places like All About Jazz and uh, the Island Packet website. I've decided, though, to do just a a little bit more uh, writing about jazz. And so now when you go to thejazzsession.com, there's a show archive link that you can click. It's right at the top of the website. It's also on the left side of the website. You can just click any place where you see the words show archive, and you'll get just a list of all the shows. And then, uh, you know, if you don't want to look through all the blog stuff, you can just go straight to the meat and listen to any of the shows. You can also click on the name of any artist on the left side of the page, and you'll be taken to that show on which that artist appears. Congratulations going out this week to Doug Ramsey, uh, who will be receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Jazz Journalists Association. And uh, that's a pretty amazing honor, and Doug is certainly deserving of it. He was a guest on the show last year, I think. And you can find that and uh, Doug's interview and some more details on the Jazz Journalists Association at thejazzsession.com. Every month uh, at the site, we have a cause of the month, which is uh, a worthy destination for your money. And this month, it is Musicians Village in New Orleans, which is a project of Habitat for Humanity and some folks like Brantford Marsalis and Harry Connick Jr. And you can click on the link that you'll find at thejazzsession.com and give them some money. And then you can keep listening to the show because coming up in the weeks ahead, there'll be a series uh, about the recovery, cultural recovery in particular, of New Orleans. Uh, just a quick note that a couple weeks ago, I was up in Lake George, New York, which is uh, quite northern New York, and there was a jazz festival there, which was very, very impressive in its billing. Uh, Pucho and his Latin Soul Brothers, the Ether Orchestra, uh, Roswell Rudd and his Shout Band, and one of the members of that band with Roswell Rudd was the bassist Henry Grimes, and his amazing story, plus an interview with Henry and uh, music from his new record with Rashid Ali, and music from one of his classic records as well, all of that is coming up in a future episode of The Jazz Session, along with jazz historian and discographer Michael Fitzgerald, who will be uh, talking more about the disappearance and resurrection of Henry Grimes. It's really an incredible story, and uh, I look forward to bringing it to you. Right now, I'm going to bring to you Adam Nywood. He's a saxophonist and composer. He's got a new two-CD set out called Epic Journey, Volumes 1 and 2, and it begins with this, Demented Lullaby.
My guest is Adam Nywood. He's got a new album out with his band, The Rabble Rouser. It's called Epic Journey, Volumes 1 and 2. And like the name suggests, it's a two-CD set, which has a, a very interesting mix between the two CDs of composed and improvised uh, and completely improvised music. And it's a, a pleasure for me to welcome Adam to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what seems to me like kind of a daring move to release uh, a two CD set in this day and age of of jazz music. Why did you decide to uh, to go that route? Well, quite honestly, um, I had eleven tunes that I wanted to record, and um, my good friend and mentor Bill Goodwin, he's a, a jazz drummer, but he's also a record producer. And he produced my first record in 2004, and um, he was very encouraging. And he he told me to, uh, we sh- he told me that you know it, it had been four years. We should go into the studio and and record my music. And um, you know I wasn't sure if one day in the studio was going to be enough. So I booked two days. And um, after after like you know we we had recorded all the material, you know Bill made like an executive decision. He, he thought we'd had enough takes of everything and he didn't want to go back and, and uh, revisit any of the material. So he encouraged us to play free. And we recorded, um, I guess, I'm trying to think, maybe like, you know, it's funny, I, I would have to add up the time, but we recorded uh, a good amount of free material and it turned out to be pretty strong. And um, I cut it up into two different CDs as opposed to one really long, you know, 80-minute disc. I decided to have two hour-long discs. And I thought it was interesting because I didn't read anything. I didn't read any of the press material. I didn't read any of the liner notes before I listened to the record, which is what I always do. And uh, I was, you know, all the way through the second disc, and I thought, man, that's really interesting. Those are two, like, totally different compositional styles. And then I open up the record and I see that disc two is almost, without exception, uh, improvised on the spot, which leads me to believe that this band was pretty comfortable with one another because the the, the interplay is very very strong and and sounds composed in sections. Yeah, it's funny. the The piano player on the disc, Christian Rondelou, he suggested that um, that the free improvisations. Uh, he felt that they were kind of like a reflection of. Um, of the compositions that we had already recorded, and you know, I think that's kind of why it worked, is because um, I don't know, I don't know how to quite how to put it into words, but it, it kind of felt like like it was the reprise of of a, of a lot of the compositions. You know, there were certain elements and certain thematic things that kept coming up, and um, the other thing is that the band had played, you know, I, some of this music. Um, I wrote like in 2005, so since you know some of it we'd already been playing for like three years. So when we went into the studio, like there there, were, there weren't any music stands, nobody was like sight reading the music, and um, I was kind of proud of of the fact that it felt like I, for the first time, it felt like I really made a record like the the right way, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know, not it's not that music, great music, hasn't been made by people uh, looking at it the first time, but there certainly is something special about getting a group of people who are comfortable with each other and with the material. Uh, I'm, I imagine it must have taken quite a load off of your shoulders uh, as the guy whose name was going to be on the record. 
I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. No, I just said I, I imagine it must have uh, been kind of a relief uh, as the guy whose name was going to appear on the record to, oh, uh, yes. you know, to have well, a, a group of people that you really trusted and, and who knew the material. Yeah, they were my, you know, honestly, it, w- it was like uh, getting to spend two days with my best friends. And it was, a, you know, the, um, it was really just a positive experience all around, you know, because um, I, I didn't really feel like I had any hired guns or anything. It was really, you know, everybody was there because they, they really liked the music. And um, there were a number of people who played all of the material, you know, throughout the last couple of years. And I felt like everybody who really um, had their hands in in the development of the sound of the band and the sound of the compositions, you know, I, I felt like everybody got a, a chance to be involved. And it was, it was, you know, it was just a beautiful experience. to them all in the abstract quite a lot here, so let's uh, let's get their names. Tell us who's on the record with you. Okay, well, my good friend, um, Christian Rondelou, he's uh, an Estonian piano player that I met at Manhattan School of Music. He plays piano and Fender Rhodes. And um, another uh, classmate from Manhattan School of Music, Jesse Lewis, I met him. He plays guitar. And um, Matt Brewer and Chris Higgins both play bass. Uh, Matt plays electric on the second disc and uh, you know he plays a lot of acoustic on the first and Chris Higgins plays uh, just acoustic bass and then I have uh, two drummers uh, Rowan Kamani plays it's kind of an interesting kit where it was basically just like uh, kick drum and snare drum and then he didn't have toms he had uh, uh, well I mean it's, it was like frame drums with things taped to them I mean the kit was very interesting he kind of uh, I can't think of anybody else that plays this kind of like ensemble of of percussion instruments. And then uh, Greg Ritchie is uh, he was the drummer playing like the traditional conventional drum kit. So um, yeah, those are the musicians on the CD. Volume one is called "Based on a True Story." It feels like it has a, a thematic element that runs through it. Is is that the case, or uh, is it just because of the? the kind of uh, unity of the players and the sound? Um, no. the uh, Basically, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, I composed all of the music 
in a two-year period. And there was a certain thing that I was experimenting with, with using parallel harmonies and um, certain voicings and certain voicing structures. And uh, uh, to be honest, it's a lot of uh, information that I that I got through studying with Gary Dial, uh, excellent piano player and you know theoretician, jazz theoretician. So um, I think that the the sound of the compositions on the first disc. Um, there is like a common thread, and if you notice, like around the middle of the disc, uh, I think well, I'm actually I'm actually looking at it right now. The the fourth track, I start to introduce like um, like this woodwind choir. You know, like the the very intro of the CD has like uh, four different saxophone. You know, there's four different tenor parts kind of swelling together. Right, and then Electoral College has a similar thing yeah. before it changes mood again, but. Yeah, and I, I think I, I kind of wanted to introduce like this um, using the studio as a tool and being able to to create uh, certain textures that I I wouldn't be able to create live. And um, it's actually kind of funny since recording this disc, I've I've started messing around with electronics and playing the iwi. I got a an electric wind instrument after Christmas, and now I'm starting to try to play like chords and polyphony, you know. So it's, you know, it's interesting how, like, uh, the experience of using the studio and being able to create these, like, textural, uh, thick, um, I'm trying to think of uh, the right term, but it's basically just, like, uh, arranging techniques, you know, using them in the studio, whereas if I was to perform the material, I'd I'd need, like, to have, you know, five woodwind players (laughs) there on the (laughs) stage with me, you know? So the you know the the thing is I decided to call it based on a true story because all of the the songs were written uh, sp- about specific things you know I had two children um, in the last four years 
you know, my daughter is four years old and my son is two. So I guess uh, a lot of the music was inspired by a demented lullaby was, uh, definitely a reflection of, I, I wrote that, um, my, my daughter was two weeks late. So right around the due date, I started to get pretty nervous, you know, as a musician living in New York and, you know, your future is kind of uncertain, you know, and I, I was wondering if I was going to be a good father and very stressed out. And that was one tune that kind of was a reflection of uh, the stress, you know, of becoming a new father and awaiting, you know, you're, you're wondering when your wife's going to be like, okay, honey, it's time to run to the, to the hospital. It's time to go, you know. So do you, have, you said you had kids too. I do, yeah. My kids remember? are uh, five and five and two. So we're, we're in a very similar place yeah. in our lives yeah so you probably remember that like you know about right around the time right around the, the expected due date of the first one there's like this energy in the home and that kind of um you know <laughs> yeah it's, it's and you, you have no idea what to expect no but, you really yeah. don't and that's you know and obviously now it's like you know here like i my oldest is four and you know now i'm completely adjusted to it and i can't imagine life the other way and you know i i don't even really one, uh, I kind of wonder why I was so freaked out because it's great, you know. But um, yeah, but it still freaks you out. <laughs> it definitely does. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's great, but even all these years in, it's still freaky sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So you know, all of the songs on the first disc are like each one is about a specific thing, like either a person or or uh, a, a, a specific mood or an experience. And I figured, you know, you, you know what I mean? You, you see all these movies, and, like, right before the movie comes on, you'll see the words based on a true story. And that's kind of how I felt about the music. I mean, it's definitely not a, you know, a movie or anything, but it's I felt like the same kind of uh, uh, intention was going into the, the music, so I decided to call it that. And then the second disc, because it starts and ends with two of my compositions and, and all of this free playing and you know everybody was talking about how much of a journey the free music was and we were surprised we actually you know we, we surprised ourselves that we could come up with that much material that a lot of people they say it sounds like compositions you know there's actual like you know reoccurring themes and and harmony and and uh, the band was coming up with really interesting uh chord progressions you know like on the fly so it just seemed kind of, um, it's funny, as we were mixing it, the engineer, um, Paul Wycliffe, who's like, I mean, he's so easy to work with. He really, it, it's, it's, he's a musician, you know what I mean? He, the, the way that he works uh, the studio, it, it, it's like, you know, watching a great uh, painter or, or an artist. I mean, he's so, he's so fast with everything he does. It's like, it's so graceful. And I remember him saying, as we were mixing it, he's like, man, this is, this is totally like an, an epic, epic journey of, of infinite proportions. And then, you know, when it came time to name the second disc, I was like, epic journey. That's that's it. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I didn't know until I heard you say goodnight to them before we started taping that your daughter's name was Ella, which gives to me a completely different cast to the second track uh, on this uh, record, which is called Ella Bella, but which is very, it's oh, not... Yeah, what did, what did you think? What was your initial reaction? What well, did you think it was? First of all, any any jazz composition that has Ella in the title, the before you listen to it, which I hadn't actually read the name before I heard it. Um, so bef- if I had read the name first, I would have thought, oh, it's some sort of Fitzgeraldy thing. But actually, when I listened to it, it's a very anthemic tune, and um, 
you know, it's just I have to plead ignorance. What does that word mean? Uh, it, it it sounds like an anthem. It sounds like uh, oh, like anthemic. yeah, oh, like an okay. arena anthem or something. Okay, and cool. And so uh, when I when I you know finished listening to it, and I was going back and kind of matching up names with the sounds, and I thought, well, Ella Bella, what does that have to do with music that I heard? So I, I imagine she must be a pretty cool kid to uh, to inspire a theme as strong as that one is. Oh, thanks, man. Yes, yeah, you know my daughter is. Um She's got personality. <laughs> she's definitely like, uh, she, yeah, it's astonishing. She's really, she's got. A, she loves. She's a performer in the making. You know, it's it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what she does. When she got back from school, she was so excited that they were here, and you know, just um, she thrives on on the positive attention. You know, when people are laughing, and you know, like she tells a joke and everybody laughs, and you know, she you can you can sense that she's like feeding from it. It's, it's interesting, you know. It's uh, these things, I guess, they run in the family. But she's, I mean, you know, she, yeah, yeah I don't know. She's my first child, so. I have nothing else to compare it to, but it just seems to me that she's so intelligent, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, thank God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you said the thing about running in the family, which is an obvious place to go, but let's go there. Um, so Ella is getting a chance to watch her father, you know, make music and, uh, you know, perform and rehearse and, and create, which is similar to your situation. Um, people who are familiar with your last name, Nywood, will know that your dad is Jerry Nywood. And I certainly first became familiar with him from two places. One is Jerry Nywood in the concert in the park when uh, Paul Simon oh. yells out his name. Yeah, that and, was exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's got to be pretty cool. <laughs> and yeah. I definitely want to ask you about that. And the other is that um, I was always, from when I was really young, a huge Chuck Manjoan fan. And uh, so, Uncle Chuck. yeah, if you listen to Chuck's music... Um, then obviously you're going to be hearing Jerry play the saxophone, particularly on a lot of the older LPs and that kind of thing. Yeah, where he's uh, you know he's just such a dominant. 
presence. So um, first, I just want to ask you a little bit about uh, what it was like growing up in that environment. Did you have a, a similar experience to what Ella's having now? I mean, your dad was playing with some heavy, heavy hitters right from when you were young. Very, very young, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, basically, my, my mom and dad um, were based in Rochester, New York. And um, let's see, I was born in 1977, so they... They moved to the New York metro area in 76, I believe. And uh, it, was def- it was like a, a year. I guess, yeah, because they found out that my mom was pregnant with me right after they had moved down here. So, um, yeah, I mean, Dad got the gig with Paul Simon and Narc Garfunkel. He had been working with Judy Collins, uh, you know, subbing in different... I remember he, he would uh, get very excited. He'd get to sub, like, periodically with... Uh, Oh man, yeah, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis Orchestra, you know, the which is now the Vanguard band and um Yeah, you know, he's uh he's the consummate uh professional. I mean he reads great and he plays all of the woodwinds and um you know, he's really uh he's kinda known in town for being able to like, you know, grab the piccolo and hit like a triple C. You know, really <laughs> high, like perfectly in tune, like without warming it up. I mean, he's just kind of like a, a special freak, you know. <laughs> you know, so um, growing up in, in that household, I mean, there was always musicians coming over for, to rehearse and have sessions, and his practice room was um, was the room right above my bedroom. So I heard a lot of, you know, uh, how do I say it? Like, I, I guess I took it for granted, but I, I heard like the the procedure of how he practiced and how he prepared, you know. And if he had a gig he would go and he would get all the instruments out that he had to bring on the gig, which is a lot. You know, he's always coming with a lot of different instruments. You know, I'll show up to the gig with, like, my tenor, and maybe I'll bring the soprano. You know, he's traveling around with, like, the baritone, the tenor, the alto, bass clarinet, alto flute, bass flute. You know what I mean? It's it's ridiculous watching him carry all these bags. Still, he's, like, 66 years old, and he's bringing so much stuff everywhere. (laughs) Um, So... You know, growing up with that in the house, but also my mom is a classical pianist and clarinetist. She did a dual major at Eastman School of Music, which is where she met my father. So, you know, I think a lot of times people, they they focus on like, oh, well, Adam plays and, you know, it's because of his dad. But, you know, my dad was away a lot when I was younger, um, you know, always on the road and, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I, I would probably hurt his feelings, but I remember one time he went away for so long that when he picked me up at school, it had been like maybe I want to say like four months or something that he was on tour, and I had forgotten what he looked like because it had been so long. You know, like I it it took a minute for like the synapse to fire. Wow! When I saw his face, I was like, wait, he looks familiar. Oh, that's that's my dad. You know, <laughs> so wow. my mother, um, she's really like. She's also like a, a a dedicated practitioner. She practices. You know, if she has to prepare for something, she'll take, you know, like one four-bar phrase and just loop it for like for an infinity. You know, and, and I think listening listening to both my parents practice was something that like when it came time to play an instrument, I kind of already knew by listening to them, like, okay, well, I have to do this. You know, I'll, I'll play this 30 times in a row, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Did you get when you were a kid that not everybody's parents 
uh, were playing music all the time and and touring <laughs> with Simon and Garfunkel. And that's actually funny because my mom said that when the the mailman would come, I'd, I'd ask, "And what do you play?" <laughs> so I think as a child, I actually thought that everybody played a musical instrument. You know, I mean, I grew up like if you have, before I went to kindergarten, I spent, you know. Man, I don't know. I'd have to ask them how long it actually was. Because as a child, it seems like an eternity. It seems really long, and that could have been two months, you know. But we went on tour with Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. So I remember riding around on, like, the, the double-decker red bus, you know, around Europe. And at that time, Paul Simon was married to Carrie Fisher. And as a four-year-old, and you're riding around on a bus with, with Princess Leia, you know. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was kind of a surreal you know, not very realistic way to grow up, you know, and, um, you know, yeah, (laughs) it was interesting. Yeah, I thought everybody played a musical instrument, and, you know, I remember vividly playing with my Tonga trucks, like, back behind the risers backstage, there's Grady Tate on one drum riser, and and Steve Gadd on the other, you know, so it was um, just around, you know, people playing good music all the time. Do you remember, you said you were at the concert in the park, do you remember it at all? Yeah, yeah, I do. There's a picture on my website, actually, of um, the setup. You know, I, I was on the stage during the day. You know, take, it took, yeah, obviously there's a lot of preparation that goes into these things, so I was on the stage. Uh, if you go to the bio page of my website, it's great. You, know, you can check it out. It's kind of a funny shot. It has both Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel and my father and the whole band, and there's like a little Adam with a cow cowboy hat you know i think dallas was pretty popular at the at the time 82 yeah dallas was popular so i had my J.R. Ewing um cowboy hat and <laughs> yeah Are there choices that you're making now as a musician or as a father because of your own childhood, Either, you know, things like your dad being away for four months? I mean, are there choices that you're that you're making or maybe things that are impacting your career uh, that you've decided that that's OK because I'm going to be doing this you know, with my family or whatever? Well, you know, to be honest, I mean, if somebody called me and wanted to, you know, wanted me to go on the road and the situation was right, I would do it. It's just so far that hasn't um 
Uh, I mean, for instance, I got a call to play River Dance, you know, like the Michael Flatley, yeah, yeah. and they wanted me to play soprano saxophone, and I was going to be gone for like nine months, you know, and I added it up, and I was like, okay, I could miss nine months of my child's life for 80 grand. I was like, uh, nah, I'd rather make 30 and, and stay home and see my kids, you know. I th- you know, and, and I don't regret that at all. But, you know, my dad, he was going away, you know, like with with Buddy Rich or, or you know, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis or Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. And I think that, you know, there's a big difference. I don't, I don't want to, like, you know, I mean, I mean no disrespect to Michael Flatley and Riverdance. I mean, but it's like, I think, you know, um, the situations that were coming up for my dad were a lot different. And I guess, man, if, if there's one thing, I mean, I made a conscious decision when I was in school going to William Patterson that I didn't want to play the flute and the clarinet. You know, I didn't want to be like the spitting image, like trying to walk exactly in my father's footsteps. I was like, you know, I really like tenor saxophone and I want to focus on just that. And I think right right there, um, as a as a saxophone player in New York, not playing the doubles, really, like the flute and the clarinet. And, you know, I mean, I, obviously, that's kind of a conflicting statement because on my record, I play clarinet and bass clarinet and all the different saxophones and stuff like that. But that's, you know, it's a little different than going into, like, a Broadway show and playing flute and having it sound like, like a classical flute player, you know. So those decisions definitely took uh some options away you know but i don't regret it it's, it's uh you know i i think it was a a decision you know I, I wanted to be a jazz player and write my own music and you know i guess getting away from my father and that and growing up in that environment i mean right around the time that i was old enough to be able to uh, to ride the bus into new york you know like when my parents would would trust me to walk down street from the house. I started taking the bus into New York, and I graduated high school in 1995. So in the 90s, I mean, the the entire 90s, the decade, I witnessed the music that was going on in New York. And, um, and you know, like back when Smoke was Augie's and going and hearing Bill Stewart play with Seamus Blake and Larry Grenadier as a trio for $5 at, at Visione's or, you know, the, the Smalls hang, because Smalls didn't have a, a liquor license when it opened, you know, I mean, do you, do you remember the small thing? Yeah, and that people would be, uh, they would serve like rice and beans and... Oh, yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, now they have, you know, the, the club is great now. I'm, I'm, you know, really happy that it opened up. But as a high school kid, I mean, it was like $10, and you could hang out there all night. And they didn't serve booze, so it wasn't a problem. And, you know, I would go and pay my $10 and hear the first band and then hear two or three sets of Kurt Rosenwinkel trio before anybody knew who Kurt Rosenwinkel was. You know, um, the Knitting Factory, the, the old Knitting Factory and Houston Street, that was another place where after a while, you know, they, they realized that I wasn't there to, to drink. I wanted to hear the music, so they would just start letting me in. You know, and then the Knitting Factory moved from Houston Street over to uh, Leonard, and uh, Ben Porowski had a steady gig there, and I would go and hear, you know, whatever band he, you know, it was always different, you know. He'd be playing with like a a DJ or or with um, man. One great night I heard was him and Chris Speed and Dave Douglas and Scott Colley. Oh my just, gosh! 
Oh, yeah, it was amazing because he would just play down in the tap room. So, you know, I would take the bus. I would walk, you know, two blocks. I grew up in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, which is Essex County. I mean, it's like 15 miles, you know, to the to the Lincoln Tunnel. So I started coming in and hearing all this really crazy music and not really knowing what any of it was or what was going on, but um, getting, uh, like, addicted to that, that feeling of, of just, like, it was crazy. You know, the music that they were making was so... To, to, to my, from my, you know, my perspective, growing up with like bebop records and stuff, I had no idea what they were doing, but I knew that I liked it, you know, and that was, uh, you know, that, that was a big thing. Like that's when I really started to fall in love with with music. Was, you know, was as like a high school kid going and hearing all this amazing music, and now it's like everybody's talking about talking about what I what I watched happen. You know, it's like, oh, the 90s were great, and this and that. And, you know, and Kurt Rosenwinkel is now like the guitar player that every every young guitar player is trying to sound like. You know, they, they all have their line six and their rat pedal, and you know what I mean? It's right. like, now it's like a cliche sound. But at the time, I remember like when everybody was talking about this guy who would sing and play. Like, yeah, he doesn't really sing lyrics, but he sings like while he's playing. You know, going and I still had braces and like a ponytail, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and would go and, and, and listen to this music and, and be, like, transported to, like, this otherworldly place, you know. And that was, like, what I was thinking about in high school. I couldn't wait to get out of high school and go and study music, you know. So are you getting a chance to uh, play this music live with the band? Well, I am actively trying to book more gigs for the band, but quite honestly, this is the first time that um, the recording was kind of, like, neatly tying up and wrapping up each of the compositions we had played we had played all of this music consistently for the last two and three years and i really felt like um that the recording was the best way to kind of uh, wrap things up and now the direction of the group is really kind of switching more towards the free improvisations and as i said earlier i've been introducing the electronics and the iwi and stuff like that so it's it's interesting um i think if somebody were to come and hear the the band now they would even hear like a further uh, evolved like a you know the the evolution of the music is is definitely con- it's continuing to evolve and that's really the uh, uh, what I find so interesting about it is you know it's, uh, if somebody comes and hears the band it's going to be different than than what's on the on the recording so it sounds like the epic journey continues exactly well, the CD is uh, Epic Journey. It's a two-CD set from my guest, Adam Nywood. And, uh, Adam, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show, and I hope you'll come back. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much.
That was Adam Nywood from his two-CD set, Epic Journey, on Innova Records. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, either in iTunes or through your favorite RSS reader. You'll find all of the links right at thejazzsession.com. Plus, you'll find the archives of all the past shows and other writing and thoughts on jazz and jazz articles and jazz news. It is a veritable cornucopia of things jazz-related. Don't forget our Cause of the Month, Musicians Village in New Orleans, which is a project of the New Orleans Habitat for Humanity, Brantford Marsalis, Harry Connick Jr., and others. I hope that you will click on the image on the left side of the page and give them some money, because they certainly could use it, and there uh, couldn't be a more worthy cause than that, as far as I'm concerned. Coming up, just a little teaser, uh, we've got McCoy Tyner coming up on the show Jack DeJunette is coming up on the show. <laughs> it's just getting it's just getting more and more ridiculous here on the jazz session. The the list of guests is uh, is pretty cool, I think, and I'm really excited about some of the folks who are going to be on the show in uh, the weeks and months ahead. David Sanborn will be here. Marilyn Crispell will be here. I think I already mentioned Henry Grimes at the top of the show. He's going to be here, and we've got a lot of great people. Kenny Garrett is going to be here. So uh, keep it tuned because there are all kinds of amazing acts coming up on the jazz session. And uh, I I just can't wait to bring each and every one of them to you. So I'm flying without a net or a script or anything else this week. And that usually is a good way to get in trouble. So I will just say goodbye. I will uh, thank the respect sextet for providing the theme and encourage you to check them out at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel who designed the show's logo And most importantly, thank you for stopping by, and I hope that you will come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.